Steven, we need your camera. Oh, whoops. Camera. Uh, technology. There we go. Hello. Hey. Yo. I just got to say, we are breaking none of the stereotypes about podcasts right now. That's incredible. We really are. Yeah, <laughs> no, we are the... <laughs> or 20-something white, or white guys. <laughs> Another glass ceiling oh. established. Now it reminds me of an excellent meme. Hang on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And uh, we have a special guest with us. Uh, special guest, why don't you say hello? Hey, all. My name is uh, Ben, and I'm happy to be with you all today. Uh, yeah, so uh, Sam was the one who has brought uh, Ben uh, to us uh, this this lovely evening. Sam, do you want to give a little bit of just like a brief introduction? A brief introduction. Um, ben, we ran into each other in England. We were actually roommates out out um, studying abroad together at Oxford. And we met and the very first thing that Ben said to me, um, which was a great line, was about the secular age. He asked me what I was studying and I mentioned philosophy and he said, oh, have you read A Secular Age by Charles Taylor? Best opener ever. And we became good friends after that. I had never read Secular Age. I still haven't read Secular Age. Um, but he introduced me to the wonders of Charles Taylor. And when we started talking about wanting to do an episode on him, I couldn't think of anyone better to bring on. Very nice. And so, yeah, as previously noted, none of, uh, let's call them the core hosts, let's say, the core host and the special guest, none of the core hosts have read Charles Taylor, unfortunately. Yeah, we are going to talk about it with lots of confidence. However, Ben will be talking about it with even more confidence because you've read it not just once, but two times? That is true. Yes, two times. Now, did it get better the second time? Like just, or just you know, just like inside upon inside, just growing and growing exponentially? Or is it just more like a linear type of deal? Yeah, I would say kind of exponentially. Um, you know, my understanding is for you guys, Alistair McIntyre is kind of at the top of the intellectual uh, pantheon. I'd say Charles Taylor's kind of at the top of my intellectual pantheon, uh, particularly through uh, the book, um, his book, The Secular Age. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I would say with both times, it's kind of an ex exponential appreciation for kind of the insights of his book and kind of his framing of uh, Western history and Western religion for the past uh, 500 years. Well, speaking of uh, religion, uh, what's everyone drinking right now, Stephen? I am drinking a nice cup of piping cold, I guess, uh, cider. It's pretty much apple cider I got from the store and then filled with ice. All right, Sam? Um, because I hate variety, I'm drinking the exact same thing I have for the last three episodes, I think, which our listeners probably know by now is Moroccan mint green tea. It's delicious. I can't bring myself to change from it. And also it's Lent. So, I mean, what else is there? Word. Yeah, it's, it's true. I feel like at, at some point giving up alcohol for Lent sort of becomes obligatory. Um, ben, what do you have? Uh, tonight I am drinking a Virgil's craft root beer because um, I'm a good, good Southern Baptist. So sticking with sticking with root beer. Damn, that's some class, classic root beer. That's great. Uh, as as for myself, I have three beverages, um, ranging from like you know sort of cold and then like closer to room temperature and then hot. We have some vanilla chai on the hot side. Sort of in the middle, we have some mango aloe drink, so little chunks of aloe floating around in there. And then finally, we have uh, some mandarin orange seltzer on the on the far end to cap it off. And I'll just be 
rotating in between those and trying to not go to the bathroom for the course of the podcast. Um, yeah. So with the preliminaries out of the way, I do believe we are ready to kick off the main event, the myth, the man, the legend, the future doctor, Ben, take us away. Yeah. So Charles Taylor uh, wrote A Secular Age, published in 2007 with Harvard University Press, considered uh, the magnus opus, magnum opus of uh, one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, in the secular age, uh, Taylor seeks to answer the question uh, that he poses on uh, in the introduction of the work, quote, why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500 in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but even inescapable? His question is, um, how did we enter this moment, this secular age, as he calls it? Um, again, where belief in God is not seen as um, self-evident, but rather one of many different religious options. Um, and really, Taylor is trying to rethink, um, help us reimagine what we, what we talk about when we talk about the secular. Um, he's really trying to attack kind of the notion of the secular as kind of a sociological or demographical um, phenomenon. Uh, so we often associate secularism with, um, you know, a regression of uh, common senses, common metrics of religious experience, uh, so declining church attendance, declines in how individuals self-identify with religious faith, what kind of religious beliefs that they hold. Um, but Taylor pushes for a really different definition of the secular. Um, he defines the secular as a set of conditions of belief uh, that characterize the contemporary West, a, a move from a society where belief in God is unchallenged and indeed unproblematic to one which is understood to be one option among others and frequently not the easiest to embrace. So another way of framing what Taylor's doing is he's saying like, we often conceive of the secular as secularism. Uh, we kind of imagine, you know, the YouTube debates between, you know, new atheists and, you know, Christians on one side and kind of this, we understand secularism as this body of non-theistic or anti-theistic ideas that are in a, com a combative tussle with religions uh, within uh, the modern West. Taylor, though, would urge us to con consider the secular as secularity as the background social and intellectual conditions in which all individuals in the contemporary West operate as we pursue you know, varying shades of religious belief or non-belief. Secularity is the water that we're all swimming in now. Um, so throughout his whole book, uh, Taylor really offers just a long sweeping argument, historical narrative over the last five centuries and 750 pages, uh, which I can only briefly summarize. So I will be leaving a lot out. From, um, from his work. But Taylor groups the first shifts towards secularity in the late Middle Ages and the early modern period under the category of uh, reform, um, which don't have to do so much with kind of changes in ideas philosophically or theologically as much as what he calls a shift in the social imaginary. Um, and Taylor uses the term social imaginary to describe kind of our collective assumptions about lived experiences as a society. What we just take as that's just the way things are that's the way the universe works, and that's how um, a society should function. So the first element of this reform in the social imaginary is what Taylor uh, describes as a collapse of vertical time consciousness, which is certainly the most complex part of his argument, but I also think the most interesting. Um, so Taylor, Taylor argues that time in the medieval West, uh, really after Boethius and Augustine, had both a horizontal dimension, uh, the kind of time that we're all familiar with, you know, the idea of a timeline, one event stringed after another, but also the time in the medieval period had kind of a spiritual vertical dimension among Christians. And the vertical dimension is related to God's eternity. Um, now, Taylor tries to unpack 
how medieval saw God's eternity differently. He argues that medieval Christians intuited God's eternity as a qualitative characteristic rather than a quantitative characteristic. That is to say that um, God is eternal not because he exists across an infinite span of the flow of horizontal time, but because he exists above and outside of this flow of horizontal time. In some ways, God's eternality is the gathering of all times into the timeless unity in which he perceives everything at once. And so in a medieval framework, in medieval spirituality, Christians believed that there were some times that were higher times that were closer to the divine eternity than other ones. The most obvious example is the celebration of the Eucharist, um, where you know, the sacrifice of Christ in Golgotha in uh, 33 AD is represented in the present moment. Um, and such a miracle is made possible exactly because God exists outside of time and can um, work in that way. There's a very real way for the medieval parishioner that Good Friday 1389 is closer to Good Friday 33 AD than it is to, you know, two months later in 1389. There are times that are qualitatively more sacred than others because in them we draw closer to God's eternity, uh, which stretches across and gathers up isolated moments in the horizontal flow of time. And so this works into Taylor's argument about uh, secularization because he argues that a crucial component of the rise of secularity was the dissipation of the notion of these higher times. Uh, first in the Protestant Reformation's attack on transubstantiation and the Eucharist mir miracle, uh, and later in the rise of Newtonian physics, which relies on a very precise conception of quantifiable time as a basic building block to the universe. When we lose these higher times, we lose uh, the felt presence of the divine uh, to a certain extent, according to Taylor. Uh, the second element of reform um, toward secularity was the rise of what Taylor calls the buffered self, um, and that is that in medieval times people understood themselves to be porous selves, that the boundary between themselves and the outside world was permeable, that they were always vulnerable to malevolent, demonic external forces, and therefore to, to reject God, to reject God's existence, was to leave oneself unprotected against these harmful forces, which Taylor argues makes atheism, the rejection of God, really unthinkable. It's um, taking your life into your own hands in a world that's very unsafe. Um, in its place of the poorest self came the rise of the buffered self, which he argues came about in part from the reformers, um, the Protestant reformers, that um, despite preaching a gospel of grace, the reformers also claimed that all Christians ought to be holy, held to higher standards, as opposed to kind of the, the model of religion prevalent in medieval Christianity that saw holiness as really only the work of the monastics. Um, the reformers' new agenda required discipline, still resolve on, on the part of each individual um, across all um, spectrums of society to live out a holy life. And this emphasis on discipline leads to a theological anthropology where humans are seen as individual moral agents responsible for their actions uh, and buffered or protected against outside forces. Once that shift has been made, however, you no longer have the risk of the poorest self being um, captured by demonic forces, um, and therefore you have less of an incentive to, to believe in God. The third element of reform that Taylor identifies is the replacement of the cosmos with the universe. Um, so the idea of a cosmos um, being held together, a cosmos is held together by kind of a hierarchical equilibrium, everything in its right place at every level. God, the angels, the king, nobility, the church, subjects. Uh, a universe is a very different concept. A universe is, is held together by laws that are seen as empirically derived and un unremittingly constant. So this is a common story that people before Taylor had, had talked about kind of the decline of co the cosmos into the universe. But I think what Taylor adds is really interesting. He says it's not just a scientific story. Uh, it's not just Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler. It's also a political story. Um, and so he ties in kind of John Locke and some of other early modern political theorists um, into 
um, this whole kind of shift from cosmos to universe. You have Locke's kind of idea of the state of nature, um, which suggests that kind of the base starting point is not one of kind of hierarchical equilibrium established by God, um, but the sort of um, tabula rasa of individuality and autonomy out of which individuals band together and build political and social orders. Um, and Taylor argues not only does Locke's political theory have implications for politics, but also for theology and how we understand the relation between God and man. Like if you accept Locke's premise, that then God is no longer the apex that holds that hierarchy, that equilibrium of the cosmos together. Um, rather, God is now the one who creates the world, gives a natural state of things, a set of laws of nature to operate by, and leaves it to humans to follow these laws and create an order, whether that be political or economic or what have you. And that kind of turns God into uh, a deistic agent. He's less involved in kind of holding the cosmos together. And now you kind of have just a God who creates the universe, but is just kind of suspended above it. So goddamn Freemasons, man. I always knew they were in charge. This, and this just confirms it. Yeah, exactly. So you, you have these three elements of reform that Taylor uh, notes. And you put these all together and you get what Taylor calls the rise of a new social imaginary, the fragmentation of the medieval social imaginary and the rise of a new one, which he calls... Uh, which Taylor calls the modern moral order. Um, and the modern moral order, which he pinpoints to around 1800, is when it begins to really be established in the West. A belief in God has not necessarily declined, but his perceived role in reality has diminished. Uh, the imminent and the transcendent have been decoupled, and it becomes easier to see the world as operating without the transcendent order existing. Uh, the modern moral order opens up the possibility for what Taylor calls exclusive humanism, uh, which emerges to bracket out any conception of the divine altogether. So as Taylor kind of continues on in his story and trying to kind of track the rise of secularity from 1800 to the present, he basically trying to make the argument that um, the felt experience of people in the West from the 1800 onward, it's not a sort of cool rationality um, chilling the warmth of religious belief. It's more a sense of kind of a hauntedness, a lingering sense that there is a divine, regardless of whether you believe, um, whether you're religious or not, a sense that, we hope that there's a divine. Um, we maybe wish that there was one, even if we don't believe that there is. We're all kind of united in the sense that we can't quite connect to the fullest with the divine. We can't quite reach to the spiritual dimension in the way that um, some people suggest that um, some writers, particularly romantics, would suggest was possible in a previous, previous era. And Taylor makes kind of two broad periodizations. The first being what he calls the age of mobilization from 1800 to 1960. And in, the, in this era, we all recognize that the backdrop of the medieval social imaginary is gone. We might even distinguish them, ourselves from that world and say, you know, we are, we're enlightened. We don't do inquisitions and things of that nature. Um, but there's still a broad sense that like, we need to align ourselves with God's design. We need to mobilize ourselves to accomplish what God wishes us to accomplish in order that our nations, our polities be stable, enjoy the blessings of God's providence. And this language shows up in the Victorian era British Empire, certainly in American civil religion. Uh, and although Taylor suggests that the age of mobilization ends in the 1960s, I would suggest that it lives on in the rhetoric of the Christian right up into the present. Um, the second periodization that Taylor describes is what he calls the age of authenticity, which is roughly from 1960 to the present. He describes authenticity as this idea that begins to dominate the Western social imaginary, the idea that, uh, quote, each one of us has his or her own way of re realizing our humanity that is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside uh, by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. So Taylor argues that in the age of authenticity, religious faith doesn't go away, but it's increasingly perceived as an individual quest, as a journey, uh, essentially through a land of um, 
epistemological uncertainty where no matter how fervent our faith or how fervent our lack of faith can be at times, almost nothing is completely axiomatic or given. Uh, and now we come to the last section of the secular age um, where Taylor kind of sketches out what he describes as um, our modern social imaginary, which he calls the imminent frame. Uh, the imminent frame, Taylor argues, constitutes the conditions of belief that we all inhabit now in the West, believers and on- non-believers alike. It is our shared social imaginary. Uh, and he summarizes the assumptions of the in- imminent frame as, quote, the buffered identity of the disciplined individual uh, moving in a constructed social space where instrumental rationality is a key value and time is pervasively secular. And he adds that the imminent frame, quote, constitutes a natural order to be contrasted to a supernatural one and imminent over against a possible transcendent one. Taylor clarifies that the imminent frame, uh, it's not really about a set of beliefs that we have about our predicament. Uh, it's not about, you know, do I agree with Richard Dawkins or do I agree with, I don't know, William Lane Craig or some other Christian apologist. It's really... The imminent frame is the sensed context in which we develop our beliefs, no matter which way they go. For that reason, the imminent frame um, doesn't necessarily mean that we can't believe in God anymore, um, certainly by no means. Um, But it does mean that, um, again, we're kind of left with um, alternate takes on what he calls alternate takes on on reality, whether the imminent frame is closed, whether there is no transcendent beyond, or whether it's open and there is a transcendent beyond. Um, but the reality is we all kind of recognize that there's a frame. We all recognize why, uh, if you're a theist, you kind of recognize why someone would be an atheist, why they would take that away from their lived experience. If you're an atheist, you'd probably be able to still recognize why some religious believers take that stance based on their lived experience. Um, and we're, again, stuck in this, this imminent frame. So I, I'm not sure if I did Taylor justice uh, in all 750 pages of his argument, but um, that was my best shot. Excellent work there, sir. That was... Yes, no, that was that was very good. Um, yeah, so I mean, as as previously noted, um, there's so many possible uh, directions that, that we can take this in. But I sort of imagine perhaps uh, one way that that we could go at it is um, let's just go like what was like your top one or two things from our reading. Uh, oh, for, for context, the people who. Unlike the real scholar Ben, we took the uh, the low road out and read a summary of a secular age by James K. A. Smith called uh, "How Not to Be Secular," which is an excellent book. It's great. It talks about David Foster Wallace and brings in some modern figures um, to act as commentary, which various people in of, of the hosts are fans of, like Walker Percy, for example. But that's that, that's our uh, primary context, and obviously recommend the book, both books, uh, if you can get them. Uh, but does anyone want to take us away with their, like a couple hot, hot, spicy takes that they, uh, walked away from the book, Sam? Well, I, I was most struck by the introduction. I think I'd, I'd read summaries of a secular age and done a little bit of study and live with Ben. And so I, I, it kind of infuses into you. Um, but the introduction, James K. Smith's introduction, I thought was pretty unique where he basically applied this to several modern cultural figures, including... All of the bands that you listen to, Sam. All, all of the, the bands, bands I listen that you listen to. to. Yes. Yes, that's exactly what it was. And I love that. But um, I don't know. I, I think that it's... I think that James K. Smith is correct that these this hauntedness is far more pervasive than the new atheists make you out to be. Or like I think of my atheist relatives who it's just 
so outside of their view that religion can make any sense. And I don't know, I, I'm drawn to this secular music that is expressing this sense of hauntedness. And it was it was just nice to hear somebody hook that into a philosophy that I deeply admire. So yeah, and it, it's interesting, because even amongst the militant atheists, I of, of all the four horsemen, I, I actually recall being quite struck by Hitchens. Uh, he he did experience this hauntedness, and now we need to be careful to not like retroactively go back and be like, oh, he was he was actually religious. He just didn't know. Like, no, he he lived and died an atheist. But there's this one documentary that's him and this one pastor going through and just kind of having this little tour where they had this debate, and it's it's kind of unfortunate because the documentary itself is really bad. Uh, they keep cutting to like cool shots of like edgy buildings and you know music and whatnot, like they keep cutting out the good arguments that they're having. Like they'll be getting into the meat of the matter and then they'll cut away. It's like, well, what the heck? But there's this scene at the very end where uh, Hitchens is relaying a story that he and Dawkins were talking. I forget how the topic came up, but pretty much the, the scenario given was all of the religious people are gone. Religion is dead, except for one person. One person is still religious. You get to have a conversation with him, and you ha you see that you have the opportunity to deconvert them. Do you do it? And Hitchens, much to Dawkins' surprise, said, "No, I I don't think I would." And Dawkins is shocked and like, "What what are you talking about? Why wouldn't you?" And he said, "Well, I just feel like we'd be losing something." And this is the man that wrote the book "How Religion Poisons Everything." Like this is the man who thought that religion was a net negative for the human experience and yet even he could sense this there's something uh and again he wasn't religious but i think he did experience that sort of hauntedness i uh, and i and i really appreciated uh smith's uh interpretation of taylor on the other end i'm assuming taylor brought this up but the uh the fragilization of faith um oh well yeah uh, uh ben you you sum, uh, summarized it with uh i can understand why an atheist believes what they believe in that it all of a sudden did kind of slam home. That's why I'm so sympathetic because I live in a secular age. All of a sudden my, my faith is fragilized because that is the background that I live in. That's the, the air, the, the air I breathe, uh, the water I swim in as it were, which we'll, we'll get more to that in a bit. Also, he brought up David Foster Wallace and Walker Percy and all, all the, the big names. I think he brought up McIntyre at one point. He was just hitting all of the right notes. Yeah. The interesting story with, with Taylor and McIntyre is my understanding is uh, they weren't at Oxford at the same time in the 1950s, but they were close enough that they were in like the same social circles. Um, during when, Taylor went over to to the UK as a Rhodes Scholar, and they were kind of they were pretty instrumental in like kind of left leaning intellectual and social circles um, in England in the 1950s. So they knew each other from a very young age, uh, though I think their paths have uh, diverged somewhat uh, since then. I think that's, that's fascinating. So I know McIntyre was a convert. Was Taylor always he? Because I believe he's Roman Catholic, right? Was he always Roman Catholic, or did he end up? Or did he start as one and end up the other? I I know that he is certainly Roman Catholic by the two thousands when he's writing a secular age. And my understanding is that like I think he was raised Catholic. Uh, he's from kind of a Quebec, uh, French, British uh, family, uh, and I believe he was raised Catholic. But but don't quote me on that. Brevin, you can interpret this. His mother was a Roman Catholic francophone. Francophone? Francophone? You mean Probably, she, yeah, francophone. She spoke French. That's Oh, okay. That would make sense. <laughs> his, and his father was a Protestant English speaker. Okay. In Roman Catholicism, all those who speak French are known as francophones, and they, they get to uh, 
uh, serve the Eucharist on Tuesdays on, on Tuesday daily mass. Um, no. Uh, so while we're talking about uh, like specific Oxford moments, the thing that struck me about this is actually related to what I studied in Oxford um, somewhat when I was there, where in sort of a fit of reactionary peak, I decided to write about Foucault and how much I hated him because I did it at that point. And now I sort of something something horseshoe of politics. It's like, you're kind of right, but for the wrong reasons um, type of thing is happening. And uh, James K. Smith actually brings up Foucault. I'm not sure if, if Charles Taylor does. But one of the, the core concepts of Foucault, as I recall, this being, I don't know, four or five years on since I have actually read anything adjacent to him. So I could be misremembering is the idea of um, epistemes or epistemes. I never know how to pronounce that word, but it's the idea of what Taylor's talking about in his own work, which is the conditions of belief. Like what are the unspoken, the always unspoken assumptions that frame the possibilities of thought for a given society at a given time. And that's what Taylor's talking about with the secular age and the transition away from it. And Foucault's talking about it in terms of, you know, punishment and sexuality and, you know, more exciting things. But it it is really such a fascinating concept because without, and, and, and this, I think, is where the power of narrative that Charles Taylor talks about, um, but also people like McIntyre recognize in, in their own book, narrative is so important because there's no other way to access that mindset except for to live almost through it. You can't imagine or you can't describe what it's like. You have to imagine into it and and through it. And there's a great quote um, by uh, Peter Hitchens. Or is it Peter Hitchens? Uh, the yeah, Peter Hitchens um, writing about Game of Thrones, and he has a line about what the medieval life was like, what it's like, what it was like to live in a cosmos that's integrated vertically on uh, time and and you know and much more so societally. Uh, and the quote is, um, in those simple times, there was a great wonder and mystery in life. Man walked in fear and solemnity with heaven very close above his head and hell below his very feet. God's visible hand was everywhere in the rainbow and the comet in the thunder and the wind. The devil too raged openly upon the earth. He skulked behind the hedgerows in the gloaming. He laughed loudly in the nighttime. He clawed the dying sinner, pounced on the unbaptized babe and twisted the limbs of the epileptic. Um, and he's actually quoting now, I recall, a uh, Conan Doyle, but that idea of the medieval worldview that is just so imp almost impossible um, to imagine. And I do realize that I'm, I'm going slightly longer after I gave the admonition to, to speak slowly, but I have one joke to make, so I have to make it. Um, so that is in the context of not being able to fully imagine what it's like to live in, not inside a modern moral order, or as he abbreviates it, um, MMO. It's impossible to live outside of the MMO. The only thing that you can do is to adopt a narrative and try to play as if you're outside of it to try and help break out of it. In a way, you have to, you know, sort of role play. You have to play a role. And in that sense, all of us in the end, aren't we simply playing one giant MMO RPG? Got him. Got him. Man, that was that was well done. The other part that really stuck out to me, and I'm, I'm not really sure what to make of it, is the fundamentalists of how like we have we're trying to revolt against this. And so we either go like the atheist fundamentalist, where it's just an extremely closed-minded view, or it's the transcendent fundamentalist, the religious just, um, where we have this perfect closed-minded understanding. I guess- Would that be the holy rollers there? Possibly, which, yeah. yeah, I mean, we like- I them. mean, it strikes, it strikes me as the, yeah, the, the fundamentalist, the um, just kind of very sure. I, I think fundamentalism is mm. just kind of a way of saying, so terribly sure of themselves that they can't imagine 
anyone else disagreeing with them unless they're evil or stupid uh that, yeah. like, that, that's kind that's of how true. i interpret a fu- like it when i say fundamentalist that's kind of the idea i have in mind both atheist and sure. theist. yeah i guess given his argument where he's basically saying that fundamentalism is the very nasty result of this what are we to make of people like you know foucault or heidegger who are arguing against that fundamentalism who are arguing for a more contextualized broader understanding of our takes um are we to accept them as much as we would accept you know charles taylor or is charles taylor urging us to accept them more than we would accept a fundamentalist who's putting forth a very self-assured closed view of a specific um what do you say spin yeah i think i think so um and and i guess furthermore to compound that is what's taylor's take on postmodernism? because it sounds like he's almost conflating the uh secular age with postmodernism in that we all this because postmodernism is the breakdown of the meta narrative it's understanding that i can only take things from my own perspective and I get that you have to take things from your own perspective. It sounds like secular age or se- secularity or se- however he uh, termed it is simply postmodernism applied to religion particularly. Perhaps. And, and I'll let Ben take over here to correct our wayward ways. But it would seem, I think, that postmodernism is more. Well, so I, I, I guess it sort of depends. Um, <laughs> it depends how you define a secular age. Uh, but the postmodernism is as been noted uh, more a, a product of the um, age of authenticity in which the confidence that you can have success in the imminent frame in in ordering it properly has broken mm-hmm. down that the, that the, that the social aspect of of the imminent frame that you can do stuff there not just by yourself but you can actually make everything inside the imminent frame work in a you know mechanistic way insert progressivism here you know early 1920s and stuff um, and then postmodernism is like oh damn well that didn't work. Um, and, and so then you reduce it again and break down the last bond you have to the individual. And then at that point, you're an individual with all of the, the Nova effect of the, um, yeah, the fragilization. Yeah, I would say too, and I'm trying to recall from last time I read, read through, I, I do think Taylor does address um, postmodern, post, postmodernism um, at one point in his argument. Uh, and I think it's, it's, he's fairly dismissive. You know, he, 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 he suggests that, you know, postmodernism in some way, Though it, it describes itself as the end of meta narratives, it offers a meta narrative of its own. That you know, one time we did believe in narratives in capital T truth, uh, but now we do not. Now we've moved beyond uh, that. We moved into postmodernism, and I think that's his kind of his quick dismissal. I'd have to go back through the book to see if he really engages a lot in that um, with more with kind of um, Foucault and other other postmodern thinkers. But I think he's he's wary. I, I think maybe he'd be more. Um, amenable to the concept of post-modernity as lived experience, as opposed to like post-modernism as, you know, a concrete set of ideas. He might be more, exp- I, I think the nature of his argument where it's less about the ideas and more about the lived experience, he'd be, he may be more amenable to post-modernity rather than um, kind of a intellectual archaeological uh, dig into the roots of French, you know, post-structuralism and, and what have you. Yeah, yeah, more, more like um, amenable to like, you know, how else is a person who finds themselves in this horrible situation where nothing is, is nailed down yet supposed to be, you know, and then what are your emergent way of life out of that? And we would, you know, that's the postmodern practice or postmodernity, but like the actual philosophy of trying to con- of construct it, he would be less a fan. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Sam, do you have something? No, not okay. really. I mean, I was, I'm just kind of, I'm musing about um, McGillicrist, but that may not be applicable, nor 
helpful. I guess I'm, I'm trying to think about right left brain stuff and where he fits into that, but um, that's probably not a tangent. I would right now. saw off my left arm to see McGilchrist and Taylor in the same room speaking. That would be and McIntyre just throw all three of them together, which I think we've said well, on the podcast it's, it's before. Two but... fellows. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I want to table that briefly because I, I I have a question for the end, um, sort of in the education sphere that involves all of these figures, but just to to focus back in on secular age for the moment, one part that also struck me because I am a large, I'm very much a fan of Walker Percy. I like him a lot. I, I think his is a response, you know, to this fragmented secular age. And his response is, as, uh, you know, James K.A. Smith notes, is to say, yes, good. It's good that we have to make the active choice to reject, you know, the badness in society. I welcome the death of Christendom. We are we we will be better people for having chosen ourselves than having it be the air that we breathe. Um, and you know, there's there's some appeal to that, and his idea of the sovereign wayfarer um, and all that is very compelling. Um, at the same time, though, it it does seem, or I, I, I might contend at least, that that does seem to give up a lot of existential ground and possibility in terms of living in community in terms of level of confidence that you can have perhaps. Um, and I'm just wondering if, if you guys have any um, reactions either through Percy or, or separately. There is part of me that the cynical, I, I, I love Walker Percy's, Percy as well. Uh, there is a bit of me that's a little cynical about him saying something like that and that it, it almost smacks of sour grapes. Like, yeah, we didn't like having the majority sharehold and intellectual thought like we didn't we didn't want that social imaginary anyway you know forget it uh so that's the cynical side of me but the optimistic side of me and i i think there is cause for being optimistic with walker person on this is that he is being realistic and i think uh smith mentions this that we shouldn't necessarily long for the uh the times of yore because there was a lot of abuse of religion and there was a lot of just kind of passive. Well, I guess I'm religious because I have to be religious and that's just what I do, I guess. And there is, I mean, something, something David Foster Wallace, there is something about the authenticity that comes with claiming your own religion and being that sovereign wayfarer. Uh, I, I know you guys have mixed feelings on silence, but one of the things at the very end of silence, even after all the horrors that the, the one priest has gone through, uh, he says that he loves his God more richly and more deeply than he ever had. And I think that in a similar way with existential crises, with fragilization, I know from my own personal experiences, the fragil- fragilization of my own faith became much more rich uh, as a result because each step is a an active choice. Much like for Walker Percy, the ex-suicide, each step is an active choice to life. Uh, the, the ex-suicide had the option to choose death and refuse. Luther came about and kind of threw a wrecking ball in. They did th- They did their own internal reformation. So, I mean, yeah, I guess I'll just double down on it and say, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of reforming that needed to be done. Schism? Not necessarily, but reform? Yeah, for sure. Okay. Ben, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I was also going to say on that point, too, that um, Taylor is not uh, a Catholic seeking to uh, bludgeon his uh, polemical counterparts on the Protestant side. Uh, he does when under his kind of banner of reform as kind of this this first shift in the medieval social imaginary towards secularity. Uh, I mean, he lumps in a lot of late medieval nominalists as well as uh, Catholic uh, counter reformers as well as part of this shift as well. Um, though he clearly devotes most of his attention to the Protestant reformers and kind of their their contributions to 
um, the the unintended consequences of, of the Reformation being secularization. And as much as I would love to, you know, LARP as an integralist, um, there is sort of an interesting point in there, and maybe this is a Hauerwasian point. I've never read Hauerwas. I should, uh, but yes, that, should. but that, you know, wishing for the return of a Christendom now is sort of. Um, it, I, I think there's a decent argument to be made that it couldn't be anything other than imperial because once you have, once you're out of the realm of there is no choice and you've bitten the fruit of being able to, you know, have the option and now anything, it becomes an imposition where it wasn't an imposition before almost. Um, and so hoping for, you know, too, too strong of a religious society is, um, you know, it's, it would be an unacceptable imposition at this point, you know, where we we've gone past the point of no return. And so what Percy's project is less a reform project and more, and, you know, less reform, less sour grapes and more, this is the hand that we've been dealt. Um, and we must deal with it to the best of our ability. I, I do have a question more on a, a meta level. So a secular age is considered, from what I understand, one of the just de facto standards for history of thought uh, or a history of thought in the Western world. Are there any other competing standards? Has he been challenged? Have there been any serious criticisms of him? Or is he just kind of considered like, nope, this is it. This is this is the model that we have. I know that he has been challenged uh, since publishing the book in, in 2007. It's obviously um, reached a lot of acclaim. Um, but for any large sweeping narrative of Western history for the last 500 years, um, there are those who suggest that there are parts of the story that he um, that he misses, certainly because he's kind of quibbling with secularization theor- theorists, kind of the, the school of social- sociologists who have just kind of projected that as, um, you know, the Western world gets more modern, we will see a decline and complete decline in religious belief. Um, because he's kind of contested that, that sort of thesis, um, I know there's a number of sociolo- sociologists who kind of quibble with his framework because it's not a sociological framework. But again, I think if you go to really even just read his introduction, he really is trying to say that the secularization theory hasn't worked. It hasn't really explained what we're seeing in contemporary religious life. The predictions that sociologists are making in the 1960s about what religion would look like in the 2010s uh, hasn't come to fruition. It's still active. It's just taken different forms. And so at least I'd say from my perspective, I think, I think Taylor's narrative seems to capture the discontinuities um, and also the ambiguity of our present moment in religious belief in the West. Uh, in a much better way. It's a much better explanatory framework, I think, than um, secularization theory. Um, So I know that's uh, where a lot of his criticisms have come from, um, but I I still think that his his narrative, I think, holds holds true. Makes sense. Yeah, far less um, probably rigorous or weighty critique uh, was brought up by Smith at near the end of the book where he's saying that um, people have contended that Taylor's Catholicism is seeping too much into his work and he's making certain assumptions about reality or certain assumptions about what is true. Or, and so therefore, he's not able to imagine a world without Christianity. And so that, that's why he's, kind of, he's skewed. I, I mean, it's a pretty shallow argument, but it's something that's been brought against him. Listen, whoever's making that argument doesn't understand the Lindy principle. All right, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, the longer something has been around, the longer it is likely to be around. And that's basically almost never wrong. And the church is hella Lindy. It's a Lindy thing. It's not going anywhere forever. So secularists are going to have to deal. Forever, amen. Well you, know, well, you know, what isn't Lindy? What's not Lindy, Sam? Water. Water is like the definition of Lindy. It's been around for the last 4 it's billion m- years. Constantly moving. 
Ah, so you never step in the same river tr- twice, as it were. No, I'm talking structural, structural not mm. sub- substantive. You right-brain person, you. I've been usurped. What? You've stolen my transition. That was a good I, transition, I, I, Sam. No, yeah, that, that was a very good transition. I just don't know how to feel. I'm sort of in shock. Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> it was like that one time we did our introductions out of order. Don't yeah, bring that yeah, up. That yeah, was, don't, you don't bring right. that up. That never happened. Hey, it's never been done. Awful. Okay, fine. Do you care to transition us, Brevin? No, oh, that was a good transition. No, now Sam now transition the transition hasn't happened. Now the transition has gone poorly. We can't go back, Sam. We can't go back. Much like a secular age. I, which got us back to where we were starting. So speaking of water, uh, what is water? <laughs> uh, that is to say, two young fish are swimming along, and they happen along an older fish who greets them. Morning, boys. How's the water? And continue swimming. The one young fish turns to the other and asks, what the hell is water? With this question... My man, David Foster Wallace, launches into what is the most stirring and ennobling speech I've ever heard. Uh, the point of the story is, quote, merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about, end quote. This is a truth he tells the eager young graduates at Kenyon College, class of 2005. The fact of the matter is that the world outside of college is banal. And this sort of reality, cliche though it may be, is of utmost importance. The water is ourselves, or rather the fact that we are all under the belief that we are the center of the universe. Quote, Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. Think about it. There is no experience you have have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it, there in front of you, or behind you, or to the left or right of you, on your TV or your monitor, and so on. Others people's thought other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, and real. End quote. Uh, he goes on a brief side to praise the liberal arts for teaching us how to think, but then reflects on how we lose sight of what that actually means, ironically enough. For him, learning to think means learning how to control what you think and how you think it. It means being free from certain thoughts so you can think others, constructing meaning by choosing your thoughts deliberately. Uh, an example, admittedly long-winded, but still ca- captivating. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day, and you get up in the morning, Go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job, and you work hard for 8 to 10 hours, and at the end of the day, you're tired and somewhat stressed, and all you want to do is go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour, and then hit the sack early because, of course, you have to get up the next day and do it all again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of of your challenging job. And so now, after work, you have to get into your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of the workday, and traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should, and you finally get there, and the supermarket is very crowded, and because, of course, it's that time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery sh- grocery shopping. And the store is hideously lit and infused with that soul-killing music or corporate pop, and it's pretty much the last place on earth you want to be, but you just can't get in and get out quickly. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit stores, confusing aisles to find the stuff you want, and have to maneuver your janky cart through all the other tired, hurried people with carts, and eventually you get your supper supplies, except now it turns out that there aren't enough checkout lanes even though it's the end of the day rush so the checkout line is incredibly long which is stupid and irritating but you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register who is overworked at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpass the imagination of any of us here at a prestigious college but anyway you finally get to the checkout line's front you pay for your food you get told to have a nice day and a voice that that is the absolute voice of death then you have to take your creepy flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with the one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, literary parking lot. Then you have to drive all the way home through this slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, etc., etc., etc. Notice here that we can choose to think about our own discomfort, our own annoyance, our own frustration with the banalities of life. That's the whole point of this little parable that he gives. But that's not required. 
And here, David Foster Wallace suggests that while that's the default setting, we could also choose to consider that the jerk who cut us off in the SUV may be frantically driving their sick child to the hospital, or that the lady screaming at her kid isn't usually like this. Maybe she's been up for nights on end holding the hand of her dying husband. These aren't necessarily or even likely true, but they're not impossible. And they're a different, shall we say, mode of being in the world. This is the secret to realizing that, quote, the crowded, hot, slow consumer hell type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred, on fire with the same force that made the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down, end quote. And here we get to one of my favorite parts of the speech, him discussing that this is a matter of worship, not necessarily of God, Yahweh, Christ, the mother goddess, etc., but of something, anything, we choose. And the compelling case for choosing something outside of ourselves is that anything else will consume you. Quote, if you worship money and things, if they are what you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. End quote. The scary thing is that this sort of worship, this self-worship, is the default setting, and something that's all too easy to slip into. But we don't have to do this, and we are free to choose otherwise. And that freedom is a weighty thing. One last quote. Our own present, co present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. This freedom all to be lords of our tiny school-sized kingdoms, all alone at the center of all creation. The kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talk about, or you will not hear much talk about much in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline, and being able to truly care about others and to sacrifice for them over and over in a myriad petty, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing, end quote. This is the greatest challenge, the task of a lifetime, to remind ourselves of the water that we live in. And so, dear listener, every so often repeat to yourself, this is water, this is water. And as David Foster Wallace wished the Kenyan College class of 2005, I'll wish us all way more than luck in doing this. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's a very powerful uh, call to be conscious. Um in our modern times of unconsciousness. Although I do got to say, like when it gets to the part about going to the grocery store, like that's just where he, like he, he just really loses me. Cause like when I'm hungry, like I don't, I don't like necessarily go to the grocery store. I, I usually just like, you know, go to the bedroom, pull back the bed, open the trap door, go to the fallout shelter. And I have something on the order of, you know, like 30,000 MREs down there. So it's like, <laughs> I don't, I don't quite understand like his whole shtick, but like, you know, if it, it if that's you, you know, anyway, but I'm sure you guys have other things. In your Washington, D.C. apartment? <laughs> this is, he's just, he's sheltering in the metaphysical wasteland. It's all good. Mm, well said. I, I mean, I love the speech. I've listened to it probably, I don't know, six or seven times since, Stephen, since you initially sent it to me a couple years ago. Um, I listen to it regularly because I think it's, it's really important centering. And I've gone back and forth. Every time I listen to it, I walk away and I'm like, I think I agree with about 80% of what he said. Like 80% is genuinely good and life-changing. And there's little bits that I, that I have trouble with. Um, and I think I'm beginning to reckon with him a little bit more. But the part where he's talking about it doesn't... He, he's correct in his diagnosis that we're going to worship something. But I guess I always run into problems when, he's saying, when he says that it doesn't necessarily matter. It's, it's very contentless, and mm. that's fine because I think this diagnosis is important, and I think that it's far more important for somebody who doesn't worship anything to at least have some kind of inkling of wanting to worship something. And it's useful in analyses and trying to figure out what somebody else is worshiping or what the framework is that somebody's engaging in, but it doesn't access the whole 
or the fullness of what it actually means to truly worship something good and true and beautiful is, is, is he's just accessing the fact that we've lost it. Um, and he was, he wasn't Christian, was he? He flickered back and forth. Uh, he yeah. tried a couple times to convert to Roman Catholicism. He, in a few of his essays, he mentions his church uh, in Illinois. Uh, in Champaign, Illinois, uh, he went to a, some sort of Protestant one for a while. Mennonite, I think. Oh, I yeah. No, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, yeah. But I mean, he is kind of the epitome of the fragilized atheist, where he is pretty sure there isn't a God, but was just constantly haunted by this this feeling that there was something transcendent. At least that's the impression I've gathered. I'm not a Dave Foster Wallace guy. You're not? Uh, weirdly enough, no. <laughs> just a fanboy. Actually, my, my roommate... Uh, Maybe not a Dave Foster Wallace scholar, but he's getting his master's degree in uh, English and was uh, huge into metamodernism, which Dave Foster Wallace kind of kicked off. So, you know, I have lots of DFW conversations. I think it's interesting in the context. I was going to say, I think it's interesting in the, I think it's interesting in uh, the context in which he's speaking, which is a a college uh, commencement speech at an elite liberal arts college. Um, It certainly felt like his speech is kind of, um, a rebuttal to the mer- the meritocratic kind of culture that just dwells in kind of elite sectors um, of American culture uh, and kind of the educational philosophy that, that undergirds that um, in that your degree is really about the name, the name of the, the institution on the diploma and not so much exactly what you're learning because that's the ticket to the high flying job in uh, you know, certain prestigious sectors um, of the economy. Uh, and I, I thought it was interesting, too, because I, as I was listening to the speech, I kept listening back to how the audience was reacting. And often they're laughing at points where, like, as a listener, you realize, like, they're not supposed to be laughing if they're really following, uh, if they're really following his speech and his argument. Um, and so kind of the disconnect, I think, between David Foster Wallace and his audience at this elite liberal arts college um, in some ways kind of reinforces the point that he's trying to make um and the alternate vision that he's trying to set forth uh for these uh college seniors very much the the prophet vibe um that that was one of his from what i've listened to interviews and whatnot that was kind of his one of his greatest fears is that he constantly felt that that was sort of people's response to him was just complete completely missing his point uh and like you said laughing when he's telling a story that he thinks is absolutely horrifying uh and just realizing oh people don't get it so yeah very very much profit vibe um and the the context of education is something that i was thinking about when um reading about uh, the summary of a, a secular agent it's the same type of thing that i thought about when um, reading after virtue or reading master and his emissary all of these books seem to me to be something i don't know sort of like a a culmination of a good liberal arts program is something like these books or Actually, as a matter of fact, all of these books in conversation and tension with each other and and their competing takes and, and, and theses of trying trying to find a way to synthesize, you know, where we are now and where we've come from and why we're here. And it just seems to me that like my liberal arts education, I was in, you know, a small Christian school honors program and like I learned some things in those classes. It was good. I, I read one or two books that were like, oh, yeah, that was really good. Um, 
But really, it wasn't until I think reading books like this, when it sort of gives you a context for how all of these things can work together, or like where the actual fault lines in the argument are. And I'm just curious what in particular you Ben, since it sounds like secular age has been like a, a part of your life for a, a while now, like what you got out of your undergrad education that then secular age added to or maybe it was perfect and secular age was just icing on the cake anyway so I'm, I'm, I'm just curious like the place of books like these in liberal education yeah that's a great question um i mean speaking from my own experience um I'm at baylor university which is a, um, a christian school um a part of the honors college um here in the honors program um the curriculum here is very much centered on um ancient and medieval and not really on the modern, which I think is really interesting within the honors program. There's a myriad of reasons for that. Um, but as a result, really, I, I read a secular age after I finished kind of the ancient medieval part of the curriculum. Uh, I read secular age on my own. And I felt like the secular age kind of drew together a lot of themes and kind of bridged the gap between the ancient and medievals that I'd been reading. Yeah, um, the Aristotle, Plato, the Augustine, the Aquinas, bridging that world to our present. Uh, I wish that it was part of the curriculum here, because uh, like you said, I think it's really easy, especially in kind of a classical education model, to give a bunch of thinkers, and then uh, particularly pre-modern thinkers, which is great, uh, but then not give any sort of narrative or explanation for how did their ideas um, dissipate or how, do these, how these ideas get revitalized in the modern period. And I think a holistic Christian education, holistic education period, uh, holistic liberal education has to connect the dots. Um, and we struggle to do so, I think, because there's, um, uh, I think there's a mindset of, well, of great texts, you know, we, we, we want to go to the primary sources, we want to go to the actual authors themselves. And I think we're often wary of grand syntheses, um, like uh, Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, or Charles Taylor's The Secular Age. But I think in some cases, particularly, you know, someone like McIntyre or um, Taylor, I think you kind of need a grand synthesis and a synthesis that, that's willing to say that um, there are multiple ways of thinking about. So someone like Taylor, for example, he, you can read a secular age all the way through as an atheist and say, yeah, I think he's, he's got it right. Even, the, even if I don't agree with him on the existence of a transcendent, I think he has it right how we got to this situation. Um, but I think often syntheses like Taylor's are seen as prescriptive of thinking rather than um, generative of thinking. Um, and as a result, they're kind of taken out of the curriculum. And to an extent, I think that is fair. I mean, it's almost something that you want to give the uh, tools for thinking first and then start saying, and this is also a really good frame that you should probably occupy. Although in some ways, actually, I would almost, actually, I think I'd do the opposite, like prescribe, this is good thinking, think like this. And then kind of like, once you've bootstrapped the person into good critical thinking, then say, eh, well, Taylor probably had a few things wrong. He, you know, screwed this part up and this part up. And I know I told you he was perfect, but like, start thinking a little bit better. Like, it's like, you know, doing really basic models in science or whatever, where you just say like, yes, this is definitely how an atom works. Wait, never mind. That's not how it works at all. But we just kind of fudged it to make it easier to kind of get you, you into. I think you could say, apply the same for, you know, frames of thought. Yeah, I, the thing that I just struggle with this, and this is more a, what a personal uh, issue than um, a pot topic, but it, it, it really just does seem like without like, much like entering a secular age, you can't go back. It really does seem like without texts like these and ideas like these, it seems hard to imagine how I had an opinion about things before. It's like, how did I possibly think that I had some kind of cogent thing to say before I took into account these other things? And I don't know, it, it, it just seems like 
like intellectually crippling to, 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 to I don't know, that to be denied these resources in in undergrad by omission, if if nothing else. Yeah, I mean, Brevin, I was in the same honor program as you were just a few years afterwards. And I mean, <clears throat> I mean, you remember me like going through it and basically it was like, you know, you have either the Enlightenment conservative thinkers of like Locke, who causes America, or we've got postmodernity, America bad and Marx, and they just have to fight it out. <clears throat> and so that's how it was presented. And I was convinced, well, oh, the professor is progressive and likes Marx. Therefore, I've got to defend Locke with everything I have. And it was not pretty. And uh, and even, I mean, you can kind of hear that probably in our first few episodes when faced with McIntyre coming out of that framework, I had no idea what to do with him. Is I'm like, well, but but how do you how do you implement it? What's the how do you have a society? How does this work? And I don't know. I mean, like that's those are important questions. And I've kept asking those questions, obviously. But I think that the the challenge that liberal arts education has is that you, if you can't implement it, or you can't, you know, compare it along with your technical expertise, because we're being in the, you know, integrating all knowledge, then it's worthless. And if you can't give yourself at least the justice outcomes, then it's dangerous, um, at least from that's from the progressive perspective. And I don't know, these thinkers seem to be coming at it from a far more nuanced level, but also a, a better level, because you can take these thoughts and create real change. And but, but, you, but you can't do that until you actually understand the anthropology, the history, the philosophy that they're talking about. I don't know, maybe Brevin, the diagnosis to what you're looking at is just laziness. We're not willing to actually take the time to learn these theories and to understand what they're where they're coming from before we're able to wrestle with them. We just dismiss them by omission. Yeah, or like just political lowest common denominators like oh yeah you should read the primary text but any interpretation beyond that like oh no not in my department institutional resources as well mm. not every place can um i, I know um baylor has offered a senior um seminar in the honors program where they only read a secular age like a very long semester long closed reading um i didn't take that course i think i would have loved it if i had um but yeah, not every place has the resources to devote a, a professor to doing that. Um, and also just kind of specialization. You know, Taylor is, is unique in that he is a philosopher, an intellectual historian. Um, he dabbles in a lot of different fields. The secular age is, is many different genres. Uh, but that's not the default operating uh, system for the modern academy by any means. Um, and certainly how we divvy up um, curriculum and how we organize academic departments and universities. So someone like Taylor, I think, is suspect in a lot of quarters because a historian will have something to sniff at in Taylor's argument. A sociologist will have something to sniff at in Taylor's argument uh, because he's trying to work across many different fields. And, you know, I, as good as he is, I'm not, I'm not sure that he has his bases covered in all of them. And I think that shows up in the kind of stuff that professors choose to assign uh, in their classes in their own disciplines. Yeah, I mean, McGillicris falls into that same trap. I mean, we all love McGillicris, and he's, I mean, really, really good and giving some some unique, valuable analysis. But he does fall into that problem of kind of trying to cover a lot of bases. I mean, maybe that partially comes from their from their training where these are people who were at one point in their lives paid to to sit in the greatest ivory tower ever and read for you know six years god Dragon damn it oh, damn. Damn. Two for two. you stole two of my transitions all right well that's the perfect transition from sam thank you sam to the all schools uh special activity so uh for those... know about this by the way yeah you know yeah th th this is great this is 
a surprise. Uh, so for those of our listeners who don't know, uh, Sam, can you just give like a two sentence summary of what All Souls is? All Souls College is the most prestigious um, postgraduate fellowship in the world. It's a college. It's it's an Oxford college that's exclusively devoted to postgraduates, and it has an insanely rigorous um, admissions process. Every year they let in between about one to two, maybe three candidates, or maybe none, if nobody's sufficient enough, and they have to be a graduate of Oxford or Cambridge, have massive amounts of credentials, and basically it's an all-expense-paid like five or six years to live in Oxford, where you're expected to write your first book, get started on your second, basically carve out your own field. And then you will get placed anywhere in the world that you want to be a professor at because there are only about 16 All Souls fellows at any one time. It is insane. And one of the features of, and, 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 and I will say that there are several great scholars um, whom, like, including one of my favorites, Lesh Kolakowski, was an All Souls uh, scholar, um, among others. Uh, but uh, one feature of All Souls is their unique admissions program process in which you are given just like a whole there's like a list of sort of slightly off the wall statements and you're just supposed to sit down and write like you know some goddamn literature on it that's just absolutely beautiful um and so in light of the fact that three of the people on this podcast have actually been to oxford you know clung to the gates of all souls reached our hands longingly inside just wishing and dreaming of a time that will never be um, I figured we should give just a very small, very brief All Souls entrance exam here on the podcast. So I have in front of me uh, 20 uh, questions from the All Souls exam um, from the test that was, I, I believe it's tests in between 2014 and 2018, I think. Um, I don't I don't totally recall. It, it, it's either 20, anyway, yes, anyway. So there are, are 20 of them. I also have on my screen... Uh, Google's handy uh, D20 die feature. So I'm going to go ahead and roll a dice for each person, and they are going to take just two or three seconds to think, and then give just like a one paragraph spoken oral defense of their uh, All Souls essay. Um, so uh, let's, I'm just going to roll a dice here to see who goes first. Thank you. Just vaguely going like one, two, three, four on our screen here. All right. Well, as it turns out, Ben, you get to go first. So I'm going to go ahead and roll the dice for you. Tell you your which question you get. Should we do one question or should I give you two and, and, and you pick one? What do you think? I prefer two. You prefer two? One. All right. All right. We'll yes. do that. You are a, a special guest. All right. So first roll. That's a 12. All right. First question option. Can music be immoral? Okay, next question. This is number nine. Uh, should we engineer our athletes? Which one would you like? Oof. I'm going to say, can music be immoral? Can music be immoral? So feel free to take a hot sec to think about it. Okay, I think I'm, think I'm ready. All right. Music can be immoral. Look at Nickelback's first, second, and third album. And you have three examples of moral <laughs> music. In conclusion, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> very good, very good. U-E-D. Clap, clap, clap. Welcome to All Souls. Welcome to All Souls. Very good. Uh, honestly, th that's your whole first book right there. Intro, chapter yeah. one, chapter two, chapter three, conclusion. Knocked it right out. Look at that. Who says writing a PhD thesis is hard? Come on. 
I'd buy that um, book. <laughs> now, I need to be clear that the way these essays are supposed to be delivered is actually you write the essay and then they spend about three months reading them and they call back the top eight or so. And then you're given a rigorous oral examination on the essay that you wrote three months before. So we'll, we'll have to try that. So in three yeah, months, we'll be asking you about immoral music and Nickelback. Yep. Study up. Great. Can't wait. Yeah. All right, All right Steven, you are next. Your first roll gives you. Uh, we rolled 12 again, so we're, we're going to re-roll that. Eight. All right. Eight is, is globalization undermining democracy? First question. Next question is 15. Do the innocent have nothing to fear? I'm going to go with the gimme. Do the innocent have nothing to fear? Uh, well, define innocent, actually. So we need to... No. Well... I'm saying that hypothetically. We have to define a robust sense of innocence at first. What is innocence? Is innocence simply, uh, you know, you have done nothing wrong under the law? Is innocence you have done nothing wrong under the moral law? Uh, because these are two very different things. So, uh, easy example, Jews hiding during the Holocaust. They are innocent under the moral law, but they are innocent, or they are not innocent under the legal law. Of course, I would say that they are innocent under the far more important law, but them being innocent has nothing to do with them being uh, having nothing to fear because indeed they had a lot to fear. So at this point, we the, the question really boils down to what what framework are you using to discuss innocence? Well, we'll call you back in uh, three months for you to present your full answer to that question. All right, uh, welcome to All Souls. Obviously, welcome to All Souls. All right, all right. Let's see what I get. I guess they missed that. I didn't go to Oxford. Whew. We we got a six. So this is when Romeo bribes the apothecary to sell him a drug. The apothecary says, "My poverty, but not my will, consents." Is that a coherent thing for him to say? Okay, that's first. Next roll is a two, and this is: Did Eve make the right choice? Oh, which one do I want? Okay, all right. I'm going to go with uh, number six. So number six restated is when Romeo bribes the apothecary to sell him a drug, the apothecary says, my poverty, but not my will consents. Is that a coherent thing for him to say? I'm going to say that's a very coherent thing for him to say, because what Romeo actually, the whole play Romeo and Juliet is it's at a very interesting time in human history where you have the medieval moral order starting to break down and you have the introduction of commerce as the primary instrument of human relations. And that's really the first time that something like poverty, which is relative inequality, that's the first time that the concept actually starts becoming coherent. And that uh, begins eating away at the proper relation of things. Whereas, you know, in the previous, in the ancient re uh, regime, uh, if you, you know, died from starvation, that's just the way of things. It's not poverty per se. It's not an independent category. It's simply the order and, and nature of the universe. So the apothecary is, is occupying a very precarious position on the cusp of uh, the age of mobilization with the ancient regime close behind him. And this is merely a man trying to navigate his way in an in a incoherent moral order the best way that he possibly can. Welcome to All Souls. Congratulations. Thank you. All right, Sam, your oh, role. Got a 19. You're going to like it. This is uh, from John Henry Newman. Oh, good. 
by great authors, the many are drawn up into a unity. National character is fixed. A people speaks. Dot, dot, dot. Such men are, in a word, the spokesmen and prophets of the, of the human family. John Henry Newman. Okay. And next roll. Uh, that's a nine. Come on. We already got that one. Five. Uh, five is, should the richest parts of a country have the right to secede? No. We're going to do John Henry Newman. <laughs> um, yes, he's correct in this. Um, I think that he's correct here. Well, he's correct here because many great authors are hitting on the same styles of transcendentals. This is exactly what we were talking about earlier. But as author, greatness for an author is them properly articulating something true and articulating it in a unique, inventive, and most importantly, correct way. In doing that, as you bring great authors together, you see that they are pointing on some sort of nexus and a nexus of what it means to be human, either by articulating it outright or by critiquing it or giving a counter to it. And by reading those authors, people are drawn to, I agree exactly with what he's saying, they're drawn together in unity. And the character, the, the barriers between people are eliminated as they realize what that true unity is. So yes, I agree with him. Very it might nice. be a cop-out because we were just talking about it. But Welcome to All Souls. Thank you. You need to like add wild applause. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Add in like the Oscars. Anyway, one question that that no one rolled, but that I hoped was rolled is question 20, which is just something to think about, um, but not to answer. And, And that is, if this were the last piece of paper available, what would you write on it? That's a very is... meta question. Whoa. Indeed. What I'm going to write on it is what I'm going to write on it. Like, oh, that's a hmm. Hmm. Mm. It's, it's so self-referential. It loops right back around to being stupid. Uh, but speaking of <laughs> stupid things, uh, stupid things are things that people like to rant about. Uh, so we're now to the rant portion of the podcast. Uh, I got that transition. Go to hell, Sam. Uh, Steven, what do you have? Uh, well, speaking of stupid things, um, I won't go out and call any particular person stupid. I will say, though, that I have some neighbors that really enjoy doing stupid things, like revving their engines at three in the morning because they just really like revving their engines and driving by at insanely fast speeds and also operating a very loud remote control car at all hours of the day. Uh, and during the summer, operating their very large, loud go-karts. Uh, my, they, I'm fairly certain they're hoarders i've seen the inside of their house and it's insane and their their outside is like covered with a bunch of wooden pallets and like three grills that are all broken down and they're just pieces of work and i'm continually impressed and confused whenever i come across them very nice i just yeah no okay everything about that sounds horrible except for the rc car at all hours of the of time that's amazing that's a great hobby and i want to do that in my apartment just drive up and down the hallway super duper fast uh sam what are your neighbors um this is my this is a politics rant as i am prone to do um a poll was recently done i heard this on a podcast but uh and so they didn't give a source which is unfortunate and i was trying to find it but i couldn't but a poll was apparently recently done that said the top concern for republicans in our country today is illegal immigration and the top concern for democrats is 
Trump supporters. And the observation here, which I think is perfectly reasonable, is that neither of these things are, first of all, permeating society in any way. It's a small minority. And secondly, neither of them are going away. Third, uh, also another point, the Republicans on their top 10 list, uh, Antifa is up there quite a ways. And the only rant here is that when one of the biggest fears of one side is the other side, or people the other side is attempting to help, uh, we are in a bad situation. And I am more depressed for it. Yeah, it, it really does make you wish sometimes that you could, you know, go back to when you had innocence. And that's what my rant is about. And that's uh, nostalgia. Um, and that was something that I've been feeling sort of recently, as we've discussed on the pod, music has the ability to bring you back to your childhood in very powerful ways because it speaks directly to your emotions. And there are so many songs that I can remember exactly, you know, where I was when I heard it, what I was doing. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've always been a sucker for n- nostalgia as a fairly melancholic introvert uh, by, by nature. And music can really just punch you in the feels. Um, but while I was talking about said nostalgia, um, my wife brought up a, the very interesting point or question for me, which was like, if you could go back and be a, a kid again, would you? And I was like, oh, yeah. And I get to do things differently. And it's like, no, no, you don't get to n- remember that you were, you know, the age that you are now. You just get to go back and be and experience that again. And that was it was such a fascinating way of thinking about it is that you could have the experience of being innocent. But much like we've talked about in this book, you, you don't get to know the water that you swim in. You don't get to know what life is like beyond that. And it's almost this impossible choice to choose unchoosing is something that you just can't do. It, it, it goes against the nature of your being as an adult is to know what it is to have both knowledge and unknowledge, to have eaten the fruit and to have not eaten fruit. And there's no undoing that once you get there. Um, and the function of nostalgia, at least somewhat in that framework, is almost, it seems to me, like a hopeful realization that that was a part of you and it's not fully lost. You can't undo you know, stepping through the portal, uh, eating the fruit, whatever metaphor you you want to use, but you always have that as a uh, core part of you that was real and whatever parts of it are are relevant and good can always be uh, called forward to the present again, should you make that your aim and your goal. Um, Ben, what do you got for us? Uh, Alas, my rant is is more petty than philosophical. Um, Excellent. uh, My my, my rant is against... um, lifetime fitness courses in college core curriculums uh, because it is my final semester here at, at, at Baylor uh, and I'm required to now take my fourth lifetime fitness class of my bachelor's of arts degree. Uh, and I chose walking. Um, not only am I, am I paying for one credit hour um, of walking uh, at Baylor's tuition rate, um, but also I am required to purchase a textbook called In Praise of Walking uh, and do assignments related, related to that. Um, so I, I am, I am a robust defender of liberal arts education and of a strong core curriculum. Uh, but I've reached my limits when it comes to lifetime fitness and, and do not believe that lifetime fitness should be an element of a modern core curriculum. That's goddamn amazing. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> like that's the best grift of all time in praise of walking. I love it. It's so good. I mean, I like walking as much as the next guy. Probably more than the next guy. I love walking. We but, know you. That's why you were late today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Um, but, wow. That's, wow. Wow. Ye gods. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right, boys. We have reached uh, around our allotted time. Any uh, 
final words of wisdom, Ben, anyone else to uh, take us out? This is water. There we go. There it is. Right. And once again, we've broken our streak of not talking about David Foster Wallace. I, I think we only made it one or two episodes this time, but there was a solid like 10 episodes or something where it was a horrible um, streak. I'm glad it's broken. Yeah. Ben, I don't know. Like you, you obviously haven't been around for the whole ride, but ever since the beginning, there was a period like probably 15 episodes in a row where Steven just would unfailingly bring up David Foster Wallace every single time and he could just not not do it. And then we <laughs> finally got away from it and now we're right back into it. So. Uh, Praise uh, be. Alas. One of these days I'll get you guys to read Infinite Jest. Or or we could do Consider the Lobster. Or we could I mean, Lobster is good. No, it's that's a good Oh, no, it's prime stuff. Infinite Jest, truth be told. It's more it, it seems like more of a fashion statement than anything else. Yeah, it's more like you want to style on other people and show off, you know, like, oh, hey, look, I read this massive book and it took me forever. Mm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, well, I guess that's just the problem with reading. Hey. Oh. Oh. Got and it. on that note, uh, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. I'm Ben. And uh, we live in a secular age. Joker meme title. It'll be great. Thanks for coming on, Ben. I'm, I will say I listened to I listened to a lot of past episodes in preparation for this, uh, okay. and I have hit subscribe, so I will be listening from hey. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm a subscriber. <laughs> Woot! After Brevin's wife, we finally found our <laughs> listener. Our <laughs> He's here. That's why our listens went up thirty percent this week. <laughs> <laughs>